good evening. So let's begin with our motivation. So I find that uh, during the day I may be running around and doing many things and the mind gets frustrated or annoyed, whatever, about this or that. But it's always very helpful uh, when starting a new activity, like tonight, listening to teachings, to recenter ourselves by cultivating bodhicitta. And I found that just by reminding myself of that motivation, even though it's completely uh, a um, fabricated one in the mind, still it, it really settles the mind and redirects it and whatever happened during the day, kind of uh, whatever annoyance there was, fades into the background because we recenter ourselves on what is important in our lives. So in that way, take a moment, cultivate your bodhicitta, transform your mental state so that you're ready to listen to the Buddha's teachings. Okay, so we're uh, almost done with this book, and we're in the last chapter, um, which is, there's several chapters about karma, and this is the last one about karma, and the last one in the book, and we won't read the uh, glossary when we're done. <laughs> I'll let you read that yourself. Oh, I'm, no, you're so disappointed. Um, <laughs> Okay, so we were talking about the um, the four opponent powers last time, and how the order is different in different practices, about how all of the four are quite important, you know, and to completely uh, purify all four results, we need to do all four of the powers um, in it. Okay, without you know, j- just without leaving any of them out, yeah. and to try and really do them sincerely. And, uh, you know, it's good to go through the day, uh, you know, in the evening and see what you need to purify. What's even better is um, during the day, if you know, notice that you've transgressed something or spoken harshly or had a bad attitude or whatever, um, 
to right away at least generate the one of regret and think, you know, I'm really sorry I did that. I regret doing that. Okay, so don't think you have to wait until the evening to regret it. Yeah, like I just said something really nasty, but uh, I'm busy. I can't do the four opponent powers now, so, uh, you know, I won't regret it until I get around to it tonight. No. And it's the same in terms uh, when we break precepts to right away to regret it. And if there's somebody, you know, another bhikshuni around, then to tell somebody right away. Okay. Okay, so we're on page um, 307. Okay, so purification. So we're talking about um, how, how purification works. So it can either shorten the duration uh, for for uh, non-virtuous actions we've done. It shortens the duration of the pain. It makes the karma uh, not ripen for some time, so it delays the unpleasant experience. Um, yeah, it just moderates it, or when it ripens, it doesn't last as long, so it, it moderates it in that way. But... Um, we only begin to actually uh, take the seeds of the just the negative karma out of the mind stream when we realize emptiness directly. Yeah. In terms of virtuous karma, you never want to regret those. Okay. If you regret those, then you purify for regretting the virtuous karma. But those. Um, you know, just to show you that the virtuous and non-virtuous uh, things work equally for both of them. That similarly, if we destroy uh, the the power of the virtuous karma by either getting angry or generating wrong views, uh, then it means that uh, the you know it, the karma will won't ripen right away. It'll be delayed. When it does ripen, it, the result won't be as strong, okay? And so uh, we want to really avoid destroying our virtuous karma, yeah. So I find that when I'm getting angry, it's really helpful for me to stop and say, is the quote, quote, pleasure I get from being angry and blaming something worth destroying eons of, uh, of virtuous karma and, you know, not having the happiness that comes from it. And, you know, clearly the answer to that is no. So that makes it very easy to kind of put down whatever it was that I was, uh, you know, unhappy about. Okay, so purification, here's another way it works. It can also prevent the coming together of the cooperative conditions for karma to ripen. Okay, so, um, you know, because when we create non-virtue or a virtue, it isn't predestined when it's going to ripen. And so if we interfere with the ripening of non-virtuous karma, um, it can prevent the co the other circumstances from coming together that would lead to it ripening. Um, 
Okay, so um, you know, if somebody had the karma, let's say, to um, to that could ripen in being killed in a car accident, like you gave the example last week, um, but they had done some purification, then maybe uh, you know, at that time, instead of getting in the car and going at top speed around the block. Um, you know, they would have had a different idea in their mind and done something else. Or maybe, uh, you know, the way you turn the steering wheel wouldn't have led to, you know, the accident. What did they crash into? An empty shop front. An empty shop front, yeah. Okay, or it may have ripened, maybe they crashed, but they weren't killed in the accident, something like that. Yeah, so that's how purification can work. Or maybe the karma just doesn't ripen right away. It, you know, it's, it's put off when it's going to ripen, and then that gives you much more time to, uh, to purify. Then at that point, maybe you can, you know, really stop it from ripening. Okay, so purification may burn karmic seeds so that they do not bring a result, but only by realizing emptiness directly is the potency to produce unfortunate rebirths completely eliminated. So the potency can be reduced by purification, but it's only by the direct realization of emptiness that that potency is completely canceled. It is good to seal purification practices as well as all our uh, virtuous practices by contemplating emptiness and dependent arising. Okay. We do this by reflecting that the I who created the destructive action, the action itself, its karmic seed, and so forth, uh, arise dependently and yet are empty of inherent existence. So this is really something to to think about because we, you know, when we create some non-virtue, it just feels so solid. Like I created this horrible karma, and there it is on my mind stream, and it weighs five thousand tons. Okay, as if it's almost something physical, you know, and it's nothing physical, uh, you know, but. Um, you know, when we when we purify and then we meditate, we contemplate emptiness. Yeah. Then, well, what is a karmic seed? You know, well, what is a karma? Yeah. And when does the karma occur? Because you have the motivation. You know, the have you have the object, the attitude, the action, the completion of the action. So, which one is the karma? You, you know, and you begin to see how there's not one, the action isn't one kind of solid thing, but there's many different factors going on in it, you know. And then ourself as the creator of that karma. Well, what we did, you know, this morning or yesterday or whenever it was, we're not exactly the same person now. So, you know, there's not an inherently existent me who's a total disaster for creating negativity. 
um, you know, there was a person that existed at that moment. The I that exists now is a continuation of that. But, you know, again, it's not something inherently existent that where I can, you know, just sit and blame me because, you know, I'm such a horrible person and I'm the only thing that was a factor in creating this karma. Okay? So, it, you know, it really helps to loosen things up. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, similarly, the person doing the purification practice, the act of purifying, and the karmic seeds that are purified lack inherent existence, but exist dependently. Okay? So, um, you know, both the negative action that we did and the purification practice we do, we contemplate what they call the emptiness of the sphere of three. Okay, so the agent, the action, and the object. Although all the factors involved in creating non-virtue and in purifying negativities lack inherent existence, they still exist and function on the conventional level and so purification is important. So that's the dependent arising part of it. All those things are empty, yet they exist conventionally because when you have all those factors coming together, something new arises. But whatever arises is not something solid and inherently existent and permanent and heavy like that. You know, it's also ceases in the next moment and produces something new. Doing the four opponent powers repeatedly may bring certain signs of purification or the reduction of the strength of the seeds of destructive actions. Okay, so this is, these are things that are said in the scriptures indicate purification. Um, I, I think there's some other ones that hopefully are easier for us to experience than some of the ones in the scriptures. So we may repeatedly, um, repeatedly, not just once, dream of being uh, with our spiritual mentor or the sangha, or dream of being in a temple. Okay, that indicates purification. Dreaming that we walk on a mountain or see the rising of the sun or moon may also indicate purification. But sometimes I wonder, you know, isn't being with my spiritual mentor even better than a dream? Yeah, and if I can see the sun and moon uh, rise right out here, yeah, isn't, is that a good sign too, you know? Does, or does everything, you know, I guess in the dream it, it indicates that there's certain latencies in your mind that are uh, ripening so that you have that kind of object in your mind. But sometimes I look at what I've experienced in my life and I think it's better than any dream could be. Yeah, I mean, the opportunities that I've had and, you know, just sitting in one of His Holiness's teachings in India, I mean, wow. I mean, uh, how, how often do you get the opportunity to do that? But I guess I have to dream about it for it to be 
purification. <laughs> this does not mean that every dream involving these is a sign of purification. Dreams are due to a variety of factors. Changes in daily life occurrences also indicate purification. Okay, so this, this one's a little bit, bit easier to, to think about. Whereas previously our mind was often unclear and heavy, now we are more attentive when listening to Dharma teachings or studying. And that's what I learned after my first purification retreat, because I was always questioning, you know, how do I know I'm purifying? What does it mean? And, you know, I, I, I thought there's supposed to be some kind of, you know, uh, experience, you know, that you know you're purifying. And, um, and I didn't have any, you know, kind of far out experiences. Uh, but I did notice that when I w- went back and I was listening to teachings again, it was like, wow, you know, they went in on a totally different level than before. Yeah. And not only just it understanding them intellectually, but, but really them um, becoming meaningful in my life. You know, there was a much stronger feeling for what my teachers were saying. So that, that I did notice. Okay. Um, we understand the meaning of what we're studying or hearing more easily and have deeper meditation experiences. Our mind is less resistant to the Dharma and integrating the Dharma in our lives becomes much easier. Yeah, so the mind not being so resistant. Yeah, the mind, you know, instead of when we hear a teaching that doesn't make 100% sense to us right away, we don't immediately reject it. Yeah, but we're able to say, oh, okay, it's me, I don't understand this, I'll put it on the back burner and come to it, come back to it later. Instead of, you know, oh, what kind of thing are they saying here, or, you know? So uh, the mind is just more, um, it's able to take things in. Yeah, when your teacher or your Dharma friends give you advice or suggestions, instead of the mind reacting with, no, don't tell me what to do. Um, you know, you're, you're able to sit there and kind of take it in and listen and process it. Okay, so that's signs of purification too. Uh, Okay. Well, purification is always possible and advisable. Avoiding destructive actions is better. Okay. So we may glue a cup back together, but it's better not to have broken it to start with. Okay. They usually give the analogy of you can break your leg and then get it repaired, but it's better not to break your leg at all. Okay. So uh, we shouldn't think... Well, you know, I, this is, I have this opportunity and it brings some pres- present life benefit, but it's, it's negativity, but I can purify it, so I'm going to do it and then I'll purify it afterwards. Okay, so that's like, you know, breaking your leg because you know you can, uh, you know, go to the hospital and get it put in the cast. 
(laughs) However, when strong negative emotions, mental obscuration, lack of mindfulness or conscientiousness, or carelessness overpower us, and we act negatively, it's important not to despair, but to remember that we can purify these actions and then put energy into doing so. Okay, so sometimes it's true. The strong negative emotions kind of overtake us. Sometimes our mind is like mush. It's like so obscured. It's like, you know, you can't, you can't do anything. Or a lack of mindfulness and conscientiousness, not really paying attention and valuing uh, ethical conduct. So, you know, or carelessness. Yeah. So just to know that sometimes, you know, these things do overpower us, but we can purify. Yeah. They say that's the one good quality of negative actions. They can be purified. Okay. Uh, so um, when we put energy into purification, this not only aids our spiritual practice, but also helps us psychologically by reducing guilt and making us more honest with ourselves. Yeah. So I think, you know, this is my theory, uh, I'm not a psychologist, but I think a lot of the problems people have, psychological problems, actually come from not keeping good ethics. Yeah? And so because of, you know, harboring grudges, wanting to retaliate, being angry at people who harm us, and harming them back, and then afterwards not feeling good about ourselves for the way we acted. You know, and then even getting into guilt or self-reproach and all that negative self-talk. Yeah. Whereas, you know, when we pay attention to ethical conduct, then we don't create as much negativity. So there's not as much guilt. There's not as much self-deprecation. Okay. And, and we just feel better about ourselves than when we're harboring grudges and resentments and bitterness over things that happened in the past. Yeah, that's just my theory. Psychologist, what do you think? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) 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 Many of the people that I worked with, um, many of were about uh, unethical actions that they did either going outside of marriage or partners or, you know, or um, cheating or, you know, treating somebody really bad and like that. So, yeah, Yeah. I think the basis is pretty much ethics. Yeah, yeah. So even in a workplace, treating something bad, cheating customers, lying to customers, all these kinds of things, yeah. And so, uh, you know, purification also really helps us to be more honest with ourselves. And then more honest with others. When we're more honest with others then, and with ourselves, then we're less afraid of being transparent. Yeah, we're not trying to 
hide things out of fear that people will think badly of us because we're willing just to be honest. And, you know, if we blew it to say that, not try and pretend that it was it was something other than what it was. Being indolent and purifying our non-virtue only harms us. I find it amusing, yet sad, that although some people call themselves Buddhists, they heed the advice of fortune tellers more than the teachings of the omniscient Buddha. His Holiness often says, because the Tibetans in their homes, they have a big altar, you know, that usually goes across one one wall. And uh, the, you know, they have the offering bowls on the part that comes off. And then the statues in the upper part. And then underneath, they have all their valuables. And so His Holiness sometimes says he feels like when people do uh, uh, pujas to Dharma practitioners, uh, Dharma protectors, they're asking the ones ab- on the top part of the altar to protect the things underneath the, the statues, you know, that, uh, you know, people are, are uh, yeah, <laughs> you get the point. Okay. Um, so His Holiness, you know, is saying he finds that sad and sad that people go to fortune tellers. So uh, now you're going to hear the story. Some of you have heard it before. Who was with? You were with. We went. They had, what was it? A psych? It was a sort of a new age trade show is what it was. Yeah. yeah. And somebody offered us a booth. Okay, so we came down with our Dharma books, and we sat there. And on this side, there was one fortune teller, and on this side, there was another fortune teller. And, you know, they were the Western kind of, so they, you know, they they were psychics, and, you know, they did tarot cards or looked at your palm, or I don't know, do you remember exactly what they did? There was an astrologer, and... And then there were some psychics, too. and Yeah. So the people, you know, they would go to, to the one on this side, the fortune teller. They would kind of walk by us looking at the books and then go on to, to the other one on the other side. And what was amazing is I watched these people when the, the fortune teller, the psychic or the astrologer was doing their thing. And they were completely involved. I mean, the quality of their attention was superb. They were like, like this, you know, when they were saying, this will happen and that will happen. You know, because it's all about me, isn't it? You know, and they're going to tell what's going to happen to me at, and and I paid for it, so it's also worthwhile. Whereas, you know, here's some Buddhists, and they're just giving things away. What do they know? Yeah. And, and I, I realized, you know, that, you know, you can actually almost, I, I don't, I shouldn't put it down, but, you know, 
you can almost say some things that you're sure are going to happen to people. <laughs> yeah, like in the next year, you're going to get sick. Okay? Now, in looking at your experience, do you get a cold or a flu at least once a year? Yeah? Or a <laughs> headache or a stomach ups. So, you know, if I tell you, you know, you're going to get sick this year, I'm telling you the truth. Yeah? Or you're going to meet somebody who's really wonderful. Do you meet somebody who's wonderful like every year? I mean, people are wonderful. You meet somebody who's wonderful every year, too. Yeah. Now, I'm not going to say you're going to get married in the year. That's going a little bit too far. Okay. But, you know, I can say love will come into your life. You know, and so maybe you get a kitten or you get a puppy. <laughs> yeah? Or you have a best friend. Or, you know, it kind of happens every year to everybody, doesn't it? Okay. But it, it's, you know, His Holiness is saying, you know, commenting how people just love the fortune tellers. Okay. But he says... The Buddha warned us that suffering will come from our harmful actions, yet we ignore this and think there is no need to exert so much energy to purify our karma by doing the four opponent powers. Okay? So Buddha told us how to avoid suffering, but we got in. <laughs> you know? What does the Buddha know? Because Buddha is saying, giving that message to a whole group of people. You know, saying, when you have bad motivations, you create non-virtue, it's going to bring you suffering. So, uh, you know, that that somehow isn't as meaningful. You don't sit there at teachings like this. You know, I mean, we just got done with, what, three chapters on karma. None of you were, like, <laughs> sitting on the edge of your cushion, <laughs> waiting for the next word to come. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so, but who knows more, the fortune teller or the Buddha? Yeah. Okay. But uh, if a, okay, so we think there's no need to exert ourselves so much uh, if the Buddha tells us to, we need to purify karma by doing the four opponent powers to stop suffering. But if a fortune teller tells us we will fall ill unless we do a particular anecdotal activity, we are eager to follow his instructions. Okay, it should not be like this. So if you go to a lama and you ask for a mo, and again, he's talking directly to you, and he says, you better do some purification. It's like you go and, you know, you, you start prostrating right away and arranging new nays and doing vajrasattva, and, you know, like that, you know, because the mo told you she, she should purify, yeah? But if His Holiness tells you in the middle of a Dharma teaching or you read a sutra by the Buddha talking about this, it's like, manana in la manana, you know? I'll do it later. I'll do it later. This is, this is, they just say that. It's not really true. Aren't we strange creatures? Yeah? It's like, I take refuge in the Buddha. But... 
you know, we don't follow the Buddha's advice, but the fortune teller or the Mo will follow that. I don't know. Okay, creating our future. Contemplating karma and its effects makes us question if doing something simply because it feels good in the moment or brings us temporary benefit is wise. Mm -hmm. Drinking liquor may make us temporarily feel good. (laughs) I feel great. But we also say and do many foolish things. Yeah. We should probably one day uh, tell each other about what we've done when we've taken alcohol or drugs. You know, it's, it's when you hear stories from your friends, it's, it's rather shocking what we've, what we've done. And it's even more shocking that we've lived through it. I think of some of the things I did, you know, when I was younger. You know, all the things my parents told me not to do. That, you know, I went ahead and did. And it's like, I was very lucky. I was very, I could have gotten really hurt. No, I'm not going to tell the story if... No. <laughs> okay. Initially, uh, certain actions may benefit our self-centered aims, but their karma consequences in the long run will bring suffering. On the other hand, waking up early in the morning to do our meditation practice may be uncomfortable now, but it it brings so many beneficial results later on. Okay, those of you who have a hard time getting up in the morning, this is good. Put this by your clock. Okay. Being honest in business may initially bring less profit, but will... uh, result in greater security and wealth later on. So one of our friends, uh, Linnea, who comes here, I met Linnea many, many years ago. And before she uh, encountered the Dharma, she was an executive with Lee Strauss in Hong Kong. Okay. And uh, so when I heard that, I asked her a question that many business people have asked me, which is, uh, you know, if I fudge a little bit on what I say to clients and customers, I make more money. So how can I really be successful in business if I am completely honest? People ask this question all the time, okay? So I asked Linnea that question, you know, because she was in a high position in the company. And she said, if you are honest with people, you may make less money now, but those people will trust you 
They will come back and do business with you in the future. They will recommend you to their friends. But if you cheat them uh, or lie to them, they will not come back and do business. They will not recommend you. So in the long run, even for your worldly success, being ethical in your business is more profitable. Yeah? So I, I uh, try and, and say that when, you know, people uh, ask. There's one person, uh, whenever I, I visit that country, uh, ask me that question, and I give him the same answer every time. <laughs> Okay. The Buddha suggested that we consider the long-term karmic effects of our actions in order to evaluate if we are creating the causes for the kind of future we want to have. Okay? So when you've really done some meditation about, you know, the four parts to creating a full uh, karmic action, and you've done some meditation on what the results are of specific actions. So we covered that in a previous chapter. And if you uh, read The Wheel of Sharp Weapons, that is excellent for uh, informing us of what the results of certain actions are. If we think about that, if we read the Sutra of the Wise and Foolish, it also um, you know, tells us about what the actions are, so or what the results are. And so we know from reading the results of the uh, non-virtuous actions that if we commit virtuous actions, it's going to be the, the action will be the exact opposite of the non-virtuous one, and the result will be the exact opposite of the result of the non-virtuous action. Okay. So it's good to remember that, uh, you know, when you're reading a text that's basically talking about the, the uh, cause and effect in terms of non-virtue, to always remember that this applies to virtuous actions as well. And so to think about the kind of future we want to have. You know, what kind of future do we want to have? And who's going to create that future for us? Okay. So, yes, we do vote for particular candidates that we think will, you know, make policies that will help us have a better future. But the real cause is our own actions. Because if we don't create the karma, even there's certain policies made, governmental policies made, we won't be able to access them or there will be some kind of obstru uh, obstruction, okay? So uh, it's important to think, you know, what, what kind of place do I want to live in? What kind of people do I want for friends? What kind of qualities do I want to have in the future? What kind of, you know, what kind of person be, do I want to be? Yeah. Because whatever kind of person we want to be, we create the cause for being that kind of person right now. Yeah. 
So it's not a thing of, um, you know, well, I want to get over my temper later and I'm kind of waiting for them to come up with an anti-temper pill, (laughs) you know, to take. Uh, I wouldn't rely on that, you know, work on your temper right now. It was interesting, some years ago, my, my brother, who's three years younger than me, but um, in terms of worldly success, vastly supersedes me. Um, so he kind of sat me down, you know, and he said, uh, this was maybe like 1989, it was a while, a while ago, and, uh, and he said, what do you want to be doing in five years? You know, what do you want to be doing? So, okay, you're a nun. Yeah, it's not the, the, uh, the text, the, the subtext was, that's not what I would have chosen for you, but okay. So, so what do you want? You know, do you want to have your own uh, uh, retreat center? Do you want to be the head of a, uh, a Dharma center? Do you want to do this or that? You know, some kind of be the head of something. Yeah, in a Dharma thing, because if you're the head, then it's more prestigious, you know, means you're successful. And I said, um, Ras, I want to be a kinder person. I was like, I knew my sister was nuts, but this is too much. (laughs) And I said, really, I have no desire to be the head of some kind of organization, but I do want to be a kinder person. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I got what I didn't ask for. (laughs) And I don't know if I'm a kinder person or not. Yeah. But he, he thought, you know, I mean, his idea of success is that's what happens, you know. Yeah. And when we started the Abbey, you know, my parents were so happy. It's like, our daughter is talking about buying land, and she's talking about interest rates and escrow and all these things that we tried to teach her when she was young that she just tuned out and doesn't know anything about. But now we can, you know, help her with it. They were so happy. And then my dad would say, oh, she's the CEO of a... Of a what are what do you have there? <laughs> he was my dad was so cute, you know. Okay. Um. <laughs> okay, I got Now, I'll tell you this a little bit. Now, um, my brother, uh, he has a uh, picture of, I don't know, he used to have a picture of me and the Dalai Lama uh, in his office. Uh, But then we arranged one time for my dad to meet His Holiness briefly. And then he put my dad with His Holiness that picture in. And... uh, and he's kind of, you know, 
well, my family knows the Dalai Lama, you know. <laughs> so, so that's a, a thing of pride with him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so cute. He wants me to introduce him to the Dalai Lama as if I could just call his holiness up and say, you got a few minutes there? <laughs> you know, my brother wants to meet you. <laughs> okay, the, uh, so the Buddha suggested that we think about these long-term karma effects and think about what kind of person we want to be and what kind of situation do we want to have later in this life and in next life for, for practicing. Yeah. Where, do you, where do you want to be reborn? Reflecting deeply and in detail about the effects of karma will increase our motivation to become more mindful and conscientious regarding our behavior, speech, and thoughts. Such reflection also gives us a more expansive view of how things operate. Yeah. So instead of simply considering the immediate effects of our actions, strong as they may be, we begin to care about even more potent effects that can ripen years or even lifetimes in the future. And sometimes, you know, with the inmates I work with, um, I often ask them uh, what they did that got them imprisoned. And when I hear their stories, I see that, you know, there, there was some moment there, often because they were intoxicated, where they could have made this decision or that decision, and they made that decision and wound up in prison. And, and then, of course, once you wind up in prison, that influences, you know, creates the, the cooperative conditions for other karma to ripen, puts you in situations to create, a, where you're gonna create a lot of negative karma. You know, prison is not an easy place to live. And, and, you know, you begin to see those things, you know, the seemingly insignificant decisions that were made like this in the spur of the moment uh, that were not well considered that can really take somebody's life way off in another direction. And so how important it is to be careful about um, the decisions we make. Yeah, even small ones, yeah, because we don't know, you know, one small thing leads to another to another. The Buddha outlined excellent advice for how to make a decision or tackle a difficult situation. If it, here it is. If an action brings both long and short-term benefits, do it. That makes sense, doesn't it? Brings long-term benefits, karmically, short-term benefits, go for it, okay? Um, if it brings long-term benefit, but temporary discomfort, doing it is still worthwhile, okay? 
So you give up a little bit of your present happiness to create some strong virtuous karma or do some kind of action that is really important in the long term, even though that means in the short term you may be a little bit uncomfortable. Okay? But if uh, an action, let's see, but if it brings immediate happiness yet causes suffering in the long-term effect, then avoid it. Okay? But these are the actions that very often we choose to do. Yeah, it brings immediate benefit. We ignore the long-term benefit. Okay? But uh, Buddha says to avoid it. And if it brings misery now and in the future, definitely avoid it. (laughs) Okay? So this is, is, is good advice, you know, to stop when we have decisions to make and think, you know, long-term beneficial, short-term beneficial, what is it? These teachings on karma are not theoretical. They relate to our daily life activities when we continually engage in actions that become the causes for pain or for happiness and awakening. Although understanding the detailed workings of karma and explaining them by reasoning alone is difficult, accepting the natural law of karma and its results is supported by more valid reasons and fewer logical inconsistencies than other explanations. Okay, so we may not be able to prove, you know, through 100% reasoning, that uh, being generous creates the cause for wealth. But if we think about it, it makes sense that it would. Doesn't it? Yeah. And we know at least from this life that people who are generous often receive gifts. Yeah. People like them. They give them gifts. Uh, Knowing this, be confident in thinking, having attained a precious human life, I have the potential and the responsibility to create the causes for happiness, and I will do this. So even though in the morning, you know, you're half tired, it, you know, it doesn't take long to make an offering on your, on the altar in your room. It doesn't take a lot of energy or time, you know. And it's something that, that if you do it every day, it really, you know, makes a positive imprint on your mind. So this similar thing for, for doing some purification every day. Yeah, it doesn't take that much time. It's not painful. Yeah. So, you know unless you had a hip replacement and you're trying to prostrate. Uh, no. But, um, you know, it's, it's worth it to do these kinds of things. Okay, now, who creates constructive karma? So scriptures say that the demarcation between dharma and non-dharmic actions is the presence or absence of the eight worldly concerns. Oh, those again. (laughs) Yeah. 
didn't you, weren't you hoping that somehow we had talked about them and that was, that topic was done? Yeah. Lama Zopa <laughs> was famous in the early days, you know, but when he was teaching like all the hippies kind of, you know, straggled up from Kathmandu. What do these lamas have to say? And he would go into the eight worldly concerns, a whole Dharma course, every talk on the evil thought of the eight worldly concerns. You know, every session. I mean, he had to, to get through to us. But, uh, and, and, and it was hard, you know, because I was brand new to the Dharma. And then I'm listening to this and I'm looking at my life and it's like, my life is one big film of the eight worldly concerns. I mean, that's all it is. And, you know, whoa, huh? You know, what's going to happen as a result of that? Do you remember those courses? <laughs> I can just hear Ramaji had a certain way of saying, you know, the evil thought of the eight worldly concerns, a certain way, you know. And, um, yeah, but as I began to practice more, I really began to appreciate that he drummed that into our heads. And I actually thanked him some years ago that he did, because... I saw that because of having that at the beginning, it really helped me approach the Dharma in the right way. Whereas some people start off with the tantric empowerment and and they don't really understand what the Dharma is about. Uh, yeah, or they start they start off with even bodhicitta and they they you know are attracted to it, but they don't really get those foundation teachings that um, can be difficult when you first hear them, but are so incredibly valuable for getting you going on the path in the right way. Okay. And in volume three, you're going to have some of those teachings. Okay. You know, it's samsara nirvana. And I move the topic of Buddha nature to that volume because... I knew that most of the book is about samsara and you're going to need some talk of nirvana and Buddha nature afterwards. <laughs> okay. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's incredibly valuable. Okay. So the scriptures further say that dharma motivations begin with the aspiration for a good rebirth followed by the determination to be free from cyclic existence and attain liberation and culminate in bodhicitta. Okay, so that's you know, the three levels of, of uh, dharma motivations. However, people can create constructive karma without believing in rebirth or having a dharma motivation. Yeah, but then you start again examining your actions. <laughs> it's like, yeah. For example, at the time of the Buddha, 
An old man wanted to become a monk, but Shariputra could not determine if he had created enough merit to receive ordination. The Buddha, with his supernormal power, sees the karma of all sentient beings, and he observed that in a previous life, the old man had been a fly on a piece of cow dung that floated in water around a stupa. Although this tiny insect did not have the motivation to take a human rebirth and become a monk, through contact with this holy object, he accumulated the merit that enabled him to be ordained. Okay. Such merit is called the root of virtue concordant with liberation, which arises when sentient beings have contact with powerful holy objects. This is a unique kind of dependent arising, okay? It doesn't happen a lot, wherein the object becomes powerful owing to the Buddha's and Arya Bodhisattva's inconceivable collection of merit and to their altruistic aspiration that anyone who even sees, hears, thinks about, or contacts them receives benefits that will ripen in awakening. Okay, so we make that prayer, don't we? It's right in the Tara practice. Me, anybody, anyone who merely sees, hears, uh, remembers, touches, or talks to me, yeah, be released from all suffering forever. Okay, and so, so we generate that aspiration. It helps even though we're not bodhisattvas. I mean, when we become bodhisattvas, then it really helps because then, you know, every time you have some contact with some sentient being and your mind is is a prayer and a determination to you know meet that sentient being in a in uh, a situation where you where they are ripe and you can uh, really guide them okay so song Rinpoche, um he was quite a llama uh it was your ordination master right yeah, so he was really something. And his um, incarnation is now 30-something, and I'd like to invite him to, to teach here. He's quite something, too. Anyway, one time he was in Los Angeles, and we took him to the beach, and he is, you know, walking along the beach, and there were these sea urchins. I think those are the ones that, whose mouths close, right? Yeah, the ones, or sea anemones, sea anemones. Okay, so Rinpoche took his mala and he would put it in the mouth of these sea anemones and their mouths would close, you know, and then take it out. And it was like he's making some karma uh, connection with these beings, you know, because as Malas, he's, he's done how many millions and zillions of mantra on them? He's making some kind of connection with these beings so that in a future life he can guide them. Yeah. Quite something to, to watch. And Lama Zopa, when he's driving, don't ever be in a hurry to get somewhere with Rinpoche. Whether you're in a car or walking, or don't ever... Yeah, <laughs> but uh, road kills. He will stop when there's a road kill, 
and say mantra over the raccoon or the deer or the dog or the cat for half an hour. Yeah. And uh, to make a karmic connection with this little living being, you know, who got killed. So I figure I was probably a flea in his shemdab in a previous life, and he, you know, kind of said some mantra. I went, get away from here. (laughs) I think he is more compassionate towards fleas. Okay. So this is a a special kind of uh, virtue that's due to the power of the holy object. So that's why we, you know, take the kitties around the um, the Buddha statue in the garden, why we circumambulate them here, why, why when we walk, we try and, and circumambulate the buildings going in this direction. Okay. Non-Buddhist practitioners who develop very high states of meditative concentration also create constructive karma that brings fortunate rebirth in the form and formless realms in their next lives, where they experience the bliss that arises from deep states of samadhi. Okay, so Hindu uh, practitioners, some of them, and maybe some of the Catholics, I'm not sure, you know, who can develop samadhi and gain states of the dhyanas and the formless absorptions in this life can create the virtue that will ripen in those uh, kind of rebirths in their next life. Many human beings act with kindness. They may know nothing about karma or future lives, yet feel compassion for those who are suffering and help them uh, motivated by genuine care. May these people be elected to Congress. May these people take government jobs. That's what we need and join the judiciary. So they work hard without getting angry or complaining. They are honest and respect those worthy of respect. Some care for the ill and the elderly Others teach children or work to prevent global warming. Some seek protection for wildlife and endangered species. Others strive for human rights. Such actions create merit leading to a good rebirth. So these people don't have to know Dharma or even believe in good rebirths or anything. But, you know, they do things motivated by kindness and care and concern for others. And that creates virtue that will ripen in samsara, you know, in a good rebirth. Mother Teresa was not Buddhist. She did not necessarily accept rebirth, although she probably aspired to be born in heaven. Her dedication to the welfare of the poor and the ill was extraordinary and the action she did to care for them was certainly virtuous. She created much merit that will certainly bring happy results. The law of karma and its results functions whether someone believes in it or not. Okay. Similarly, whether someone believes that gravity exists or not, she still walks on the ground because of its power. 
someone who does not know what constitutes non-virtue may uh, still engage in destructive actions and experience their painful results, even if he does not consider his actions unethical. Okay. So it isn't necessarily what you think of your actions. It's, you know, what they actually are. Secular ethics is a useful guideline for those who do not adhere to any spiritual path and want their daily actions to be beneficial. His Holiness really emphasizes secular ethics. The word secular, as His Holiness uses it, is different than the American meaning, because he's using the Indian meaning. The Indian meaning of secular means it kind of applies to all the religions, the American meaning of secular is it doesn't apply to any religion. Okay. So, um, yeah, but he's really emphasizing ethics for people who are not Buddhist or people who are non-believers. You know, some way that people can make their life useful and beneficial and create uh, virtuous karma so that they can have a good rebirth. Okay, so their main, the, these people, their main aim is in their own interests in this life, but they consciously focus on not harming others when fulfilling this aim. Okay, so they're working for the happiness of this life, but they do so without wanting to harm anybody else in the process of it. In this way, even if not all of their daily actions are virtuous, At least they will be neutral, and some will be virtuous. Animals, too, create constructive and destructive karma. Their ignorance, however, hinders them from deliberately refraining from harmful acts and engaging in constructive ones. So I think, wasn't it dolphins and some whales? They show signs of of compassion for other living beings, yeah. So, um, and I remember some years ago when I was going through a really difficult time, and uh, oh, the kitties would sleep on my bed then. It's like somehow they sensed something wasn't right, and so they, you know, offered some comfort, you know. And one time in previous years, when all the kitties got along, I don't know what happened since then, but uh, Upeka was not feeling well. I think he had had a vaccination. He was curled up in a corner in Ananda Hall. And the other three came and sat around him, you know, like they were offering him some, you know, some support during, during that time. Okay, but still difficult to create for them to create those, that karma. Needless to say, someone who gives a gift to bribe another person is not practicing generosity. Okay, so that person's not creating the virtue of generosity. Similarly, harming one living being in order to give to another is not the practice of generosity. You know, because it's it's stealing. Yeah? Nor is giving weapons uh, 
uh, the practice of generosity. Okay, so when we study the perfection of generosity, you know, there's certain things that you give and there's certain things that you don't give. And you don't give weapons and poisons and, you know, things like that. It's not generous. Yeah, so for obvious reasons. Yeah, but for some people it's not so obvious. Yeah, they think, oh, we want to help those people who are fighting for this or that, whatever. Okay, so let's pause here. And um, questions, comments? I just wanted to ask you, Venerable, in writing to, just kind of, I've had this thought a few times, but I haven't ever done it. In writing to our Congress people and our county commissioners, would it be too far-fetched for them to outline Buddha's excellent advice on how to make a decision? The long-term, the, oh. the short-term, to, to go through that scenario with our county oh. commissioners? Yeah, or if, with the, if you just talk like that, you don't mention future, future right, lives? Right, just within the next yeah, 50 just, years. Yeah, and handling their responsibilities. And to look at their decision through these four criteria. Yeah. Yeah. I've thought about it. Yeah, that, that could be very helpful. Is doing purification in a group more effective than doing it solo? And if so, why? They say that when we practice together in a group, um, you know, I mean, we're automatically rejoicing in the virtue of the other people. And... Uh, it, they say that the karma is more powerful. And the analogy is if you try and sweep a floor with one little strand from a broom, or you try and sweep the floor with the, the, the broom made of many strands, the results are different, different. So if we practice together with other people, you know, the, the results of the purification are stronger. Can I add to that one? Um, also, when we purify, or then we multiply ourselves. That's um, you know we multiply ourselves. We imagine ourselves in, in multiple forms. Oh yes, so that's uh, an important yeah. part of that. Yeah. yeah. So when you prostrate, if you imagine all your previous lives in human form, prostrating with you, or do you like to give your? Um, you have a slightly different version of making decisions. There's. Um, Two more points or two different points you indicate. Oh, okay. So there's another way that I use for, for making decisions, which is um, first to say which, which decision enables me to keep my precepts and live ethically. Yeah, which decision, you know, fosters that the most. And which, do, you know, which of the options uh, uh, gives me the opportunity to benefit sentient beings, and which option uh, will help me the best to generate bodhicitta and wisdom. So I'll assess different, uh, you know, options in the choice, and then using those criteria. I was thinking about Venerable um, Semke's question and um, sharing that the other four in the book with um, people that aren't Buddhist. And it really is affected by what you consider to be beneficial and what you consider not to be. Mm. Somebody may not care about the uh, 
um, negative effects on the environment, but consider monetary things very beneficial. So mm -hmm. it really matters the um, framework of what they consider beneficial. Right. And, and so when, if you say that to them, to point out that you, the things that you think are beneficial in it, yeah. But I really like your other ones that you just said because they are structured in a way that is talking about what is beneficial. Yeah. 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 But if it, with a, a county official, you aren't going to say, you know, do what is ethical. I mean, they don't want to hear that. But if you say, uh, you know, um, uh, in the long term, it's better for our county not to have a smelter than you know, to have a smelter because, and you give the reasons against and the reasons for, and hopefully something goes through to them. Bodhisattva vows without knowing you were taking them, does it still count? Um, you haven't took it if you don't know that you've taken it. Yeah? Just like, you know... You may sit through an initiation and have no clue what's going on whatsoever and not do any of what the, you're instructed in the initiation. You haven't taken it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Does realizing emptiness purify the mind because our self-grasping carries the karmic seeds? No, the, the self-grasping doesn't carry the karmic seeds. The self-grasping creates the seeds of non-virtue, okay? So if we pure, if we realize emptiness, then we stop the root of the, uh, of the afflictions that make us create the negative karma. Or mm -hmm. if the mere eye carries the karmic seed, how does emptiness purify them? Because emptiness... Uh, emptiness doesn't purify virtuous karmic seeds because emptiness, the object emptiness realizes is the absence of what ignorance grasps onto as real. So non-virtue creates the, uh, I mean, self-grasping and afflictions create negative karma. They're rooted in the grasping at inherent existence. Emptiness perceives the, or the wisdom realizing emptiness perceives the absence of inherent existence. So in that way, that's why it acts as an antidote against the negative karma, okay? Because the, the mental factor that that's the lies at the root of the creation of the non-virtue, you are getting, you are chipping away at that mental factor and eventually will destroy it by the wisdom realizing emptiness. Regarding the psychology aspect, um, I wanted to add to that, um, because not everybody maybe who's listening um, may be aware of it, but I think also that, um, let's say you have had experiences very young um, and you haven't had time to create non-virtues in this life but it's still a result from previous lives and uh, if you haven't purified 
then as long we will have the result of whatever abuse or terrible thing we have experienced. But your last teaching was helpful um, to make that very clear that if we haven't purified, we will have the results of our experiences. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That answers the question that so often comes up. You know, why do children die young? They haven't had a chance to create non-virtue. It's because of uh, previous lives. A lot of the foundation uh, antidotes, they kind of rely on accepting this very long-term view of um, continuum of rebirth, I guess. Mm -hmm. But it's difficult for someone who is um, still new to the Dharma to really feel that that bigness of the amount of rebirths yeah. in the past and in the potential future. Um, so is that just something we get used to with familiarity by reflecting on the worldview or are there some tips maybe to have that realization set in? Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's true when you're new, this isn't an, an entirely different worldview. So it's not like, you know, oh yeah, it makes sense and I believe it. So you have to really think about it. And I think the key to thinking about it is understanding that the mind is a continuum that the mind is, your present mind came from previous causes, and that your present mind will give way to results in the future. You know, and that one moment of consciousness creates the next moment of consciousness. And there's nothing that can stop that continuity of one moment of mind creating the next moment of mind. There's nothing that can destroy it. You know, an atom bomb can't stop the, you know, the mental con continuum. So, so then if you think about that, then, okay, what happens at the time of death? The mind doesn't just stop. It continues on. You know? And for ordinary beings, it continues on by taking rebirth. And, uh, and so then you begin to think, okay, you know, that this whole idea of, of continuity, you know. And I think sometimes it might help starting to think back, uh, to starting to think about physical things, because we've studied science, you know. In the West, we know a lot about science, not so much about the mind, okay. And to think that... Uh, you know, again, the con material continuity. Uh, this time you can go backwards. And, you know, the earth was formed from... I forgot. Yeah, the, the star exploded. And then, but the star came from a, a black hole. And the black hole came from something else. And, you know, as far back as you go... There's just, you know, again, a, a causal continuity of one thing emerging from whatever the material was that was its cause, uh, beginninglessly. And so, you know, if that, if it helps you to understand that on a physical level, then you can think the mind works the same way. It's a whole, that's the whole thing of really thinking about what does causality mean? Yeah, and we generally accept causality. Causality. I know. I mean, we know that to relieve hunger, you have to eat. 
you know, that eating is a cause to redu reduce hunger. So we believe in causality, but it's just when the causality is it's a kind of causality that we haven't thought about so much, then, you know, it doesn't come so easy. But if we get more familiar just with the, the whole idea of a cause will produce an effect, an effect does not come without nothing, without anything. And whatever is a cause will always result in something. Yeah. It may not be what, you know, you may say, well, what about the last moment of oil in, in, in a, a lamp, an oil lamp? Well, it produces heat and then that heat goes out into the environment and gets dispersed. But there's still, you know, there's still a result of that. Okay. Yeah, does that help? Okay, then we'll stop here.